Welcome to In Loving Recollection. This is your pal Brent. When I was 16, I used the very small amount of money I saved while working as a card attendant at a golf course to book some time at the local recording studio with the intent of recording some songs with my buddies Chris and James. It was an ADAT studio located in the basement of a Masonic temple and was owned by this local musician named Cody Deal who sported a really great braided ponytail and had at one time played in a band with Alan Jackson. I was pretty unprepared and not very efficient as a musician, and therefore I ran out of money before I could complete the recordings. And in some regards, I guess it was kind of a waste of money, but I did really love the experience of being in a studio, and I think it probably helped spark my lifelong obsession with gear. Over the years, I've accumulated an ever-growing and changing assortment of musical equipment. At different points in my life, I've owned several guitars, basses, and amps, various pieces of recording equipment, and numerous keyboard-based instruments. I've owned a lot of great pieces, many of which moved around with me to the various living situations of my early 20s. I've had an upright piano for almost 20 years that I've had to depend on the kindness of friends to help me move on many occasions. And for a while, I also owned a pretty heavy Fender Rhodes and a Con organ that I was also frequently lugging around. I'm sure it was concerning to my former roommates and future spouse to be showing up with all this equipment, especially considering that I wasn't in a band and some of these instruments I couldn't even play all that well. I'm sure there were aspirational goals involved with many of these purchases but really, I'm just kind of obsessed with gear. I just love this stuff, and I feel that nothing could ever fill up the cistern of my lust for acquiring more. I've also spent a lot of time reading and learning about gear, spending hours with stuff like tape-op and various message boards, or combing through eBay and Reverb. I do feel like the knowledge that I've gained through this obsession has served me quite well on a number of occasions. One of my all-time favorite pieces of gear was my beloved Casio SK-1. It was given to me by my former roommate, Eric Moody. He had owed me some money, and I gladly accepted this wonderful keyboard, along with some pavement singles as payment. And even though his copy of Pacific Trim was not included, I still feel pretty good about this deal. I also once purchased a working Optigan for $10 at an estate sale. That's right, I said it, $10. The person had no idea what she had, and honestly, I was a little surprised that I was able to keep my cool when I saw the price. My gear obsession has also led me to discovering some really great records. As I've previously mentioned on past episodes, one of my all-time favorite bands is the Walkmen. One aspect that initially drew me to this band was their affinity for vintage instruments that they operated their very own analog recording studio called Marcata. I was on the Marcata website one day, just passing the time, reading over their equipment list, when I decided to visit the Always Valuable Links section, which listed bands that had recorded there. And this is how I happened upon the music of the New York City-based band, The Natural History. I can remember going onto their website and really liking the songs I heard. 
and when I saw that they were on the same label that put out the Walkman's first record, as well as another record I really loved, One Time Bell by French Kicks, I figured this would be a band for me. So I ordered a copy of the Natural History's 2003 debut record, Beat Beat Heartbeat, and when it arrived at my house, I put it on, and I listened. This is the story of that record. My name is Derek Hokins. Um, I played drums. My name is Julian Tepper. I played bass. I'm Max Tepper. I sang and played guitar. Hope you always think it's right. Hope you never worry, never even feel afraid. Hope you always think it's right. When that ring is on the finger, feeling tired, tired, tired. Listen to me. I tell you, man. The members of the Natural History all hail from the East Coast and would be exposed to music at an early age. Derek Vokens, whose father was a working musician, would spend the majority of his youth in Newtown, Connecticut, while Max and Julian Tepper, whose father Robert Tepper had a top 40 hit in 1986 with his song No Easy Way Out, grew up in Manhattan. Well, you know, our dad had his home studio in our living room. He, uh, he lived with us till like 85. I was born in 77. So for those years, he had a studio in our living room with all kinds of gear, like a Tascam 4-track and a Oberheim and a Fender Rhodes and things like that and a mixing board. And he was always, him and our mother were always really into music and uh, playing music really loud, buying new records. They were really into MTV. So when MTV popped in, what, 82? Um, it was on all the time and you know it was like just kind of like in in our dna you know we were just kind of always listening to it and we would air drum and put on pretend concerts and things like that for relatives and yeah it was kind of kind of always always around no no kind of like uh you know wasn't it wasn't something that wasn't there so it's just kind of always yeah. there uh my father also played but it was a different experience and i think max and julian's father he played rock and roll but it was um it was all like covers they they didn't really write anything and it was like a job i don't think my dad got a real job until um well after high school not that playing music isn't a real job so he used to play in new york city quite a bit and um Boston and had this weird kind of sort of proto tour schedule. Um, he was in the musicians union and, you know, he'd get called for things. And so he was playing a lot, constantly working, you know, it was, it was five nights a week of playing shows, um, you know, coming home at four in the morning, there are all kinds of wacky stories and stuff, but it was very much like 40 hours a week stamp the time card, you know, check out, get paid, you know, on to the next thing. It is through a mutual friend that Max Tepper and Derek Vokens eventually meet and begin playing music together. Derek and I have a mutual friend named Craig, and Craig and I have 
known each other since we were in high school. Craig is Derek's age. So, Derek, you are, I'm 77. What are you, 73, 72? 72. Yeah, so I think Craig is maybe one year younger than you, but you guys were buddies. And Craig and I were buddies in high school. Craig and I played in a band together when he was in college and I was in high school. I had a couple of swings at college, and at one point I came back home to New York and I started playing music with Craig again. And Craig said, uh, I know this amazing drummer. And uh, and uh, sure enough, he was right. He was amazing. <laughs> yeah, we played in a band called Friends of the Tiger that was like uh, sort of math rocky, kind of Fugazi-ish, sort of noisy, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, kind of touch and go kind of stuff. At the time, it felt math rocky. Now I feel like we it wasn't that. It was more rock than math rocky. What do you think, Derek? We weren't really going off into like left field, but it was um, certainly guitar heavy, you know, high energy type of thing. Compared to the natural history, there was less of a focus, say, on songwriting and more maybe about sounds. I mean, not to say that we sounded like, I don't know, like Stockhausen or anything, but like the, <laughs> the, the, the thing, it was, it was, you know, late 90s style indie rock. Hermits, hermits, we were not. Yeah, no. (laughs) (laughs) After Friend of the Tiger disbands, Tepper and Vokens make the decision to continue working together, as well as move in a different musical direction. Uh, Our friend Craig didn't really want to practice as much as Derek and I did. You know, I I certainly was more into, as much as I loved all the post-punk and math rock stuff, I was looking to definitely, you know, my heart was with stuff like the Beatles and Elliot Smith and things like that. So, and of course, I was also falling in love with the band Spoon. So I didn't really want to be playing that kind of music anymore anyway, and I wanted to sing. So when Craig left, I kind of used it as an opportunity. And uh, yeah, I don't know if you remember, Derek, we went to some like early Williamsburg restaurant that was like some two-tiered kind of sacrificial lamb. Didn't didn't last very long. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we talked about it, and yeah, we we went for it. Very cool of Derek too, because I had not sang in a band before and had not written many songs. Having previously played bass in Friend of the Tiger, Tepper switches to guitar for the new project, and brings in his younger brother Julian to play bass which would actually be the first time the two brothers collaborated musically. I don't think we really played together until The Natural History. That's right. I don't we think played. like we actually... That's right? I mean, I can't even... We played like think so. liter- literally once or twice together in our room, but pretty right. much no. And when I went off to school, to college in 95... Julian, I don't, I think that's that's when you started playing in bands. Yeah, like um, sophomore year. Okay, that was my first band. But yeah, we never really sat down and played until we were sitting at my graduation in my bedroom, Max and I, in in DC, until George Washington, and Max and I started playing uh, guitar together. Do we have two guitars in the room? I think we had two guitars. By the end of that conversation, um, Max had asked me if I wanted to play with him and Derek. 
As the band began rehearsing and developing their sound, many of the songs would start to share similar characteristics. I definitely, if my memory serves, I feel like we were really struggling to figure out how to write a song, and that sort of every song is some version of that. (laughs) And I don't mean that as a criticism, I just mean that it was, um, we were all having this first sort of experience of... um, of trying to put this particular kind of song. The thing that I recall, I mean, at least where my head was, I don't know if I articulated it specifically, um, but I know that everybody sort of felt sort of the same way. Once we wrote something, I didn't really feel like, oh, we got to get to four minutes. Yeah. If, if a song was going to end up 50 seconds long and we felt like it was done and we didn't have to say anything anymore, then it's done. That's true. You're right about that. You know, I, I I didn't feel like, and there are a lot of songs like that songs that I felt were some of the stronger ones that were, you know, maybe like a minute 30, a minute 40. Mm -hmm. And maybe if you're looking at a stopwatch, you're like, wow, that song's really short. But when I listen to it, I don't feel like, God, we should have put in the glockenspiel in there. You know, Max will tell you I'm a gigantic minute. Uh, And and that probably had some influence and 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 certainly wire like I revisited in this covid time revisited a lot of stuff i listened to a long time ago and i mean i don't know what else to say about pink flag that hasn't been written a thousand times already but that record is absolutely incredible and like the vast majority of the minutemen discography i i totally love that probably had if not like written down in stone when we were sitting there writing everything it certainly had an influence on what at least i was thinking I think also, like, I was pretty intimidated by multi-tracking and four-tracks and stuff like that. We didn't really cut any demos. We just learned the songs. And, uh, and, uh, so pure. Yeah, we just learned the songs. And I just didn't even really, you know, I, I mean, when it came time to, like, go into the studio, it didn't, I think only insecurity was the only reason that I was like, oh, it needs more stuff on it, which is why the second record has tons of shit on it. Um, yeah. But uh, it just didn't even really occur to me. The band that Derek and I were in before and all the bands I had been in before, like, you know, you just wrote the song in the practice room and then you played it and then yeah. you went and got it recorded as it was in the practice room. I think another, um, I don't think Julian was ever really particularly in this band. I know Max was, and I'm another one of my super fan bands. Um, But that had a similar aesthetic, although maybe not literally short songs, was Lungfish and that sort of idea of here's the idea. Um, We're going to show this idea in this song and then there you go versus some kind of like band on the run situation where it's got like a dozen parts not to say that paul mccartney is not awesome but like it became at least to me like i sort of felt like yeah i can't i can't do that <laughs> like I just, 
like I don't know, like even in the in the in the context of like the first band that Matt, Max and I were in, like you know, we never there was never songs that were like 12 minutes long or, you know, then there was like a flute solo. Like I, I just, I'm, I'm not that, I can't do it. If you asked me to do it, I'd be like, you I gotta don't know where to go. Strength, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, that was sort of it. It was like, no, I can understand this a little bit better. And I'm, yeah. that's not to say that that's like, I'm not trying to diminish myself or anything that we did. Like that is to me as hard, if not harder. You know, that to be able to, like, I think a lot of people will listen to the Minutemen or Wire or Lungfish and then say, like, oh, yeah, they, they just did this. Like, okay, let's hear your record, jackass. You know, like, <laughs> like it's so, and you can say that about a thousand different types of art where it's like just a single idea and well executed and yeah. that's it. Like, there's thousands of, of excellent examples of really pared down things and, that was where I felt like at least I could manage being able to do something that was like really super complex. I, I just sort of felt like it wasn't appealing and I just didn't feel like I had the head for it. It is around this time that New York City would begin to experience a revitalization within its rock scene due to the emergence of many notable acts, including the Yeah Yeah Yeahs, Interpol, LCD Sound System, and The Strokes. And it is through Max Tepper's connections that the band is able to get involved with the local scene. So I was working as a music publicist at a firm that did a lot of bigger bands and was run by two kind of industry veterans at that point. They were in their late 30s and had been in the music business for a long time. It was called Big Castle Media. And uh, I don't know what happened first, but I was going to shows a lot and through friends i started working with the bands big hassle was the publicist for the strokes and all that happened there and then you know quote unquote smaller bands like radio four and french kicks and then the walkman who were you know not as big as the strokes but obviously went on to do great stuff i was their publicist and stuff so we were we were kind of tapped in already. Like we were able to get shows very quickly because I knew Mike Studo at Brownies and, you know, it was just, it was, it was really a great example of, you know, you, when you have a strong network of contacts and stuff and you have friendships with people, we were able to do stuff very quickly that a lot of new bands weren't able to do partially because, you know, we were good, uh, and then also partially because, you know, we knew people. After recording a three-song EP at the Walkman's Marcotta studio in Harlem, the band would sign with the Brooklyn-based label Startime International. I love the French Kicks. Really, really love their the EP that came out before then, and I was going to see them play and had been bringing Derek and Julian. I definitely brought Julian to one show, and I contacted Isaac after I saw them play and I said I'd love to work for them and Isaac was just starting out Star Time and I gave Isaac our EP, the one that we recorded at Marcada and he really liked it and that's how we started to work with him as a band. Not at all to take away from our uh, talent, but, uh, you know, very, very fortunate. You know, a lot of bands have to wait a long time before they find someone to put out their records, if at all. 
Startime International would release the band's five-song self-titled EP in July of 2002. Following tours with French Kicks and Spoon, the band would begin writing songs for their debut full-length album. Dirk left the band briefly. We went on our first tour in May of 2002 for a month. Uh, we traveled around the country. We had Julian's childhood friend Rami play drums, and Derek had left the band at that point. But around a couple of weeks into the tour, we were communicating with him and we, wa- we wanted him back so bad. And uh, when we got back, he rejoined the band. And uh, we went on another tour. I don't know if we had started writing by then, but when we got back from tour uh, that fall, we definitely started writing in earnest. And uh, yeah, that fall of 2002, and we recorded. It's kind of amazing that we actually, because we recorded the record in, in January, I believe, of 2003 so we really wrote the record in four months which which uh explains why i was in such a bad mood the whole time because <laughs> 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 i i wouldn't ask someone to write a record in four months unless it was like some uh you know some friendly challenge for their debut record the band brings in musician and engineer tom monahan to produce Previously a member of the Pernice Brothers, Monaghan would work on a number of notable recordings, including Beachwood Sparks' excellent second record, Once We Were Trees, and a record very near to my heart, The Natural Bridge by Silver Jews. I found out about him through Isaac, I think. Isaac recommended him. Yeah, yeah, that's, that's how it happened, through Isaac. And, uh, and it was, again, really fortunate really fortunate because he kind of, you know, he kind of, he had cut so many records at Slaughterhouse in Massachusetts, I believe that that's where it was, or in Connecticut. You know, he had cut tons of records and he just, he kind of understood the music really well. Not kind of, he did. And um, Tom had been the bass player in a band called The Lilies and they had this record called Better Can't Make Your Life Better, which is actually, you cannot stream it. You can only listen to some, uh, listen to it on YouTube. And uh, that was an excellent record. I remember feeling like a lot of kinship with that record that Tom had recorded. And that record really blew me away. Derek and Julian, do you guys remember <laughs> listening to that a lot? I, I remember listening to it, yeah. And it's sort of a side that was a little weird. Um, as I mentioned, I grew up in Connecticut. Tom is also from Connecticut. I was in, he was in a band called Monsterland in the early 90s. And I was in his video. I didn't know him really at all. But somebody told me to show up at this house. They were filming a video. And uh, we just went there and went nuts. Um, and uh, we talked to him once in a blue moon. Like, really didn't know him at all. And uh, it was funny when Max came back. He's like, yeah, we got this guy, Tom Monahan. I'm like, I know that, dude. 
Um, <laughs> but it was weird. So the entire time that we were recording that record, which was also sort of nice, not that it needed to be like a high school reunion to make a good record, but it was just talk about dumb Connecticut stuff, um, which was sort of entertaining. <laughs> you know, on like the eighth track, he would, or the eighth take is something you would say like, Remember that time when Craig and oh yeah okay let's do it again oh it's perfect you know (laughs) (laughs) speaking of unstreamable stuff he did a great record with a band called China Pig in uh, a beautiful studio that was in the ex Colt Firearms factory and that was sort of the thing when Max said there's this guy, Tom Milehan. I was like, I remember thinking, I don't know if you recall this, Max. I'd be like, yeah, this guy, let's do him. Like, I, I, I just remembered his work on the China pig record, which is called tiptoe through the hatching chamber, which that drummer is bonkers and super good. (laughs) Um, but that is a great record. I guarantee you cannot stream it anywhere, but if you find it, it's, you'll get it for like a dollar. But it, they, he did fantastic work on that record. And uh, that was sort of one of the things that I thought, like, oh, yeah, let's do it with Tom. Like, because he, you know, he obviously knew what he was doing. That's cool. I didn't remember that connection. The majority of the record would be tracked at Brian McTeer's Minor Street Recordings in Pennsylvania, with some additional recording done in Brooklyn. Yeah, it was recorded at Minor Street, which at the time was in uh, Maniunk, Pennsylvania, a suburb of uh, Philadelphia. I think it's in Philadelphia now, but I could be wrong. But I don't, I don't, I don't think it's in the same place. I mean, Maniunk, the town, at least when I first arrived there, it, it was right on the river. It was really, it's a super cute town. I guarantee, like all the houses there are like a million dollars. But like the. Um, <laughs> There was a very small industrial park and it had like a couple auto body shops and, and he had um, a part of that, of this building. And so it was, he had built out like a lounge area right when you entered and then there, the control room was upstairs and there was a very large um, tracking room um, that I want to say the ceiling was probably about 20, 25 feet high. Yeah, uh, it's enormous. Yeah. Enormous. Yeah. yeah, and um, it was a cool space. Um, I mean, it was freaking cold, but, but you know, the it was a nice place to track. And I haven't talked to that guy in twenty years, but he just super awesome dude. And awesome dude. The studio was just a um, it was a the really. Band. Friendly facility. Yeah, we, we were in good. <laughs> yeah. We were in good hands. No, we were in good. Cause, yeah, we had Tom and Monahan and Brian McTeer. It was a good environment. It was, for as as far as being, as sort of um, inexperienced as we were, <laughs> everyone was comfy. Most importantly, we were spoiled too because yeah, I mean Tom, for all intents and purposes, was the producer per se. I mean, he's as much of an engineer as well, but. uh we got just two really great people, you know, I, I definitely remember my memory, which is, it's kind of hazy, but my memory is that we had kind of more one-on-one with Tom as our sort of like point person, but Brian was just as much there. And yeah. And we formed a friendship with Brian afterwards. And 
Yeah, he's, he's, both of them were great guys. And then they made a record. Beat Beat Heartbeat opens with the track Facts Are and greatly exemplifies the natural history's proficiency in crafting dynamic and complex bursts of melodically jagged pop. In under three minutes, the band is able to do a lot with very little, as if not a single note is being wasted. Each individual part is distinct, but cohesive, and is held together through both the song's smart and tight arrangement and Boken's expressive drumming. When we were writing that, um, and a lot of this stuff, uh, at least on that record, I don't remember the record after that, this happened, but for, without a doubt, Max was like, listen to the fall. And that was sort of floor time heavy. And Max would say like, oh, what do you think about doing something on the floor time? And I have to say, initially, I was sort of like, yeah, yeah. you know, like I, I felt like sometimes when people were doing that sort of thing, I felt like it ended up becoming a distraction from, I guess, the real, I don't know, what I felt like the point of the drum should be. It sort of felt like just above like accessory percussion where it sort of felt like, ah, let's throw maracas on there and what there's maracas on this record. But where I felt like, ah, it's like a gimmick, you know, like I didn't think it was really something that was going to make it sound like it was important or is supposed to be there. But I was wrong. Like, so once I remember sitting there playing it and thinking like, this sounds stupid. But when we would listen to it, coming back i was like no oh okay no i get it this actually works here it was important for me at least to listen to the song afterwards there was no way i was going to write something like that without listening to to everything outside of it that sounds completely obvious and stupid but at least at that particular moment like listening to a demo of it i i was like why would i do that we just wrote it we just played it you know so then adding that that floor tom there and on a lot of where the floor toms is being used like that was max saying like hey why don't you check this out and then like coming back and saying no that's actually that's actually functional that was sort of a lot where that came from well derek i remember when you um in the top of the chorus how you just hit the crash and then you leave some space there before you come back in the toms that you were just talking about I remember when you did that, I was like, whoa, okay, cool. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, that 
That's something everyone thought at some point each part of this record was very cool. You should know this as a general thesis. It's like every single part. And that was sort of a rule of the band. I don't think any one of the three of us ever let someone slide on a part. I think for me, it was the fun song to write. I remember it challenging me a lot. I was really sort of figuring out how to play bass then. But I, I kind of, um, in a sort of, in a larger way, I, I feel like this is a good case of a song where we felt, at least Derek and I, and I would say Matt to a degree, like, you know, you have this basic structure of the song, but we were going to make each sort of like, almost like quadrant of it seem just slightly different. You know, I spent a lot of time on the lyrics and took them seriously. I actually think that is the one song that uh, that is, is about a relationship I was having with with somebody around that time, a, a girl I was dating because of the kiss on the cheek. Uh, yeah. yeah, so that, that that's probably just uh, some sort of recognizing, some relationship thing is thinking about patterns in my romantic relationships and frustrations, that kind of stuff. Watch This House, with its shifting dynamics and great rhythmic interplay, is a song lyrically inspired by Max Tepper's experiences while working in the music industry. The first record has a lot of songs about like uh, music industry or like music critics or social anxiety, going to clubs and stuff like that. And You know, if you're like a rock and roller in the scene in your 20s, you might be at least I was moved to write about. That was, I think, the first song we arranged (laughs) with Derek after he came back to the band. I remember we came up with the chorus part together. That was like this new chapter of the band where we were kind of doing it, you know, every day and playing every day and very intentionally trying to crank out a record. And yeah, that's my memory of it. I remember we, we stumbled on that chorus part on that open E and it was pretty awesome. I don't think I liked the song at the time when I hear it now. I'm, I think it's awesome. It's funny. It's like I really, I didn't enjoy that song at the time, but now I feel like it's a good song. I think, you know, that song is a better example of what I was talking about with the floor tom thing. You know, I, that especially like the the verse drum part. Comparing the two, like I guess it's a little more dynamic in facts are, but that drum part, before you know we wrote that i don't think i would have written a drum part like that it just wasn't anything that i really thought about doing but that's definitely an example of you know sort of opening up the drums and i think that's one of the things about when you play in a three-piece there's just a lot of space 
anyway and it's easy to you know do things that you otherwise might not do if you know there were other people playing keys or what have you or there's another guitar player um, you know there's more room to there's more room to work or i mean there's really no place to hide really when you're playing yeah, three yeah, keys. I was so you, you know there you are so what are you going to do right here and so maybe i think that was sort of part of that you know, the calculus of making some of that stuff work, there's just, there's just more space. You, you don't feel as awkward about putting something in there if it, if it happens to work. I feel like I learned so much uh, from this band about writing because exactly what Derek just said, it's like teaches you that you don't have to do that much what you have to do has to be good and has to be well done, but you don't have to do much. And it's sort of a liberating feeling. I, I definitely learned that writing those songs with you guys, you know, it, just how simple you can be and to get, communicate well, something deep to someone. Well, I think uh, if I can give you a big put up here, as we say at my daughter's school, Julian, that uh, <laughs> in a lot of ways, like, Derek was an amazing drummer coming into the band and this is not to put myself down at all, but like when Julian and I talked about being in a band, I didn't even really think about, I, you know, it was just about playing music together. I didn't even really think about what it was going to sound like, but Julian really quickly developed into a pretty fantastic bass player. I wasn't expecting that, not as in a, I thought the opposite, but I just wasn't, you know, I wasn't like expecting said, it either. You were so great at, you know, it was kind of like doing what Derek was doing on the drums, but in a completely different voice. So, you know, it was like you were just finding the space of each song and you were really great at, you know, just playing around with different registers in order to really, you know, give the different parts of the song different feels. So that really was like pretty remarkable. And, you know, definitely the interplay between between all of this was great, but I think Julian and Derek, they were definitely the, the musical voices in a lot of ways, like almost like lead instruments. right hand, with its punchy guitar riff, precise drumming, and interesting bass lines, is a song that originally appeared on the band's self-titled EP, but re-recorded for their debut full length. And I want to warn you, I might get a little choked up 
from the equipment story you're about to hear. The right hand is about uh, the label see-through that was uh, run by Dave Sardi, which was an awesome label that put out Enid and they put out uh, the Starlight Mints and they had to shut down and I don't know why they had to shut down. I really have no idea, but I just kind of imagined what, you know, the label must might have been going through and the bands of the label and things like that. That was a, a real early one for us. Definitely remember that this was like Friday night practice and which was kind of weird. You know, it was like still uh, just young enough that like uh, the weekends were for like going out with your friends. So something to me felt like we were taking the band really seriously that we were practicing on a Friday. And that one was born out of uh, just spontaneous jamming. I, I remember we wrote it very, very quickly. One of the things that was cool about that particular song for me like the intro that julian plays is very unique because it does sound like a solo and one of the reasons that it worked like first of all it's it was very smart of him to do that but i always thought it sounded cool because like julian had which used to be max's amp julian had this like blue line svt that was awesome <laughs> it waited time and it cost like a mortgage payment to like retube but like yeah, you know, so when you play that amp like when you play that line i can like hear it in my like left ear like right now you know but yeah the whole story of getting that thing was so awesome like that like this was before we were in, even in the band but max had this like junky pv nothing against pv everybody's got to go there at some point in their life but like <laughs> yeah man i mean they, they made some good stuff they, it's just not a blue line svt and, and so we were playing with we were playing with friend of the tiger and Max was a good bass player and and like it was one of these things like the PV was at like the end of its lifespan the thing was crapping out and it was one of these things like do we take this thing to like get it fixed and spend like three hundred bucks on like something that's like supposed to be you know not supposed to be fixed you know and right I was I think this was. God, this is so dating. It's so awesome. It's just, this story might as well be from like 1971. <laughs> but like, <laughs> I went to Manny's to go buy drumsticks, which like that already puts this story at least 20 years old. But I went to Manny's <laughs> to buy drumsticks and I w came down from downstairs and they used to have the amp room right there. And I'm like, Max needs a new amp. I'm just going to go and walk in there. And I saw this SVT and I was like, how much do you guys want for that? And the dude's like 300 bucks. And I was like, get the fuck out of town. And I ran out the store, like went to a pay phone and called yeah, back. This is, like, this is the part that I don't, I just don't know how the rest coordinated. I remember the story that it's like in a pre-cell phone era, how yeah. that, that you called me and I got the message and you know what I mean? Like you didn't have to. You didn't have to go back eight days later. It all happened on the same day. I believe. Yeah. No. No. I. So this is the hilarious part of the story. So I'm like, this is never gonna happen again. This is never gonna happen again. And then like, and I'm like, Max deserves this thing. He could do it. Like we got to get this thing right now. And uh, so I said, the guy's like, well, you want to put a deposit on it? You can pick up tomorrow. And I just moved there. I had no money. And I'm like. 
what if I just stand here? Can you, can I, can you just not sell it? And the guy's like, okay, you idiot. So I stood there with the, with the amp and just waited for Max to show up and Max showed up and he played the thing for like 30 seconds and was like, dude, this thing's insane. So that became Julian's bass amp. And so that like, I'm not saying that Julian wouldn't have done it without like whatever PV he was playing before, but the, that like it just sounded way better. Eric, you like are stuff. It was you just are like right. You're boom! It was this, this huge yeah. like gut punch. Like <laughs> fuck you, pal. You know, like it was awesome. I think the equipment gods are 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 crying a tear. <laughs> you're you're definitely right. That thing was it was powerful. So yeah. there's no chance you were not gonna feel it. You were gonna feel it in every part of your body. It was oh cool God. when you're playing it live, like because when he would. If it was just Max and I, you know, there's a space that has to be filled. And then it was just like, you know, sounded like John Paul Jones or something. It was crazy. I, I mean, not to get sentimental about retail stuff, but like that, that is my, that is my Manny story is like, I remember going down there and seeing the thing and being like, holy shit, this is it. You know, it's all coming together. I stood right there, totally like Boston style, like holding a parking space, putting a lawn chair in front of it. <laughs> I ain't fucking moving. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> is that, is that your time. amp? Yeah, it is my amp. You pay for it? No, it's my amp, though. <laughs> <laughs> The efficient pop gem, It's a Law, is a triumphant songcraft that seamlessly juxtaposes a laid-back groove and surf-like beats with spiky and brash guitar. Yeah, it's all on do what you said. I remember them as just being really difficult. They were hard to write. Like, I think we were having a hard time. I definitely remember uh, It's a Law being definitely the the bloom was off the rose. And it was hard. Right, yeah. Hard it was, it, but yeah, it's a we, beautiful song. I mean, that song gets me, like, pretty emotional, actually, when I listen to it. Oh, <laughs> to be cool. honest with you, it does. I feel that song. I remember Max doing a solo for that at Minor Street. That, uh... I can't believe I can remember this, but the um, <laughs> that Brian had like this old Vox Pathfinder. It was like a bedroom amp, and it was cool because it just added a little bit of a different flavor. And I think he might have used an SG on that, and it it, it just sort of 
you know, I don't, I don't know if it was necessarily something that had to happen. You know, like when people decide to go down roads, like, oh, let's bring in 90 to guitars. Like, is that really a good idea? But in that particular case, it was cool. It was just sort of like, let's have it sound, you know, a little bit, you know, just a little bit off in that little tiny Vox and that SG I thought sounded really good. The drums are sort of a little bit more close. And what I remember was both Tom and Brian were, were really had a strong opinion about the snare sounding a particular way. <laughs> the secret on that one was that it was like tuned down. To, I mean, it was basically a head on top of a drum. The lugs <laughs> were like, keep the rim on. There was no tuning at all, you know? And so that annoyed the shit out of me. <laughs> but it's like, like by that point, you know, I, I wanted the stick to react a certain way. And they're like, no, don't, don't do that. Don't do it. Like, figure it out, dude. <laughs> and, and I'm, and I'm happy he did. Cause it, it did sound cool, but it was funny. Like sitting there looking at it and listening to, and I think that was maybe one of the things that I was trying to get at before was, you know, there's hearing the drums like in your head as you're playing them. And then there's what's like actually coming out of the speakers and that it's not that one's right and the other is wrong necessarily, but it wasn't until we got into the control room and started mixing it that it made sense. I remember sitting there at the drums and being like, these drums sound like fucking shit. Like, <laughs> like, cause they were, and they looked crazy. I mean, there was like these huge, the head was just annihilated and it, and it wasn't even tuned at, like at all. And I was thinking, this thing sounds like fucking garbage. And then, they were all the both of them were 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 adamant. They're like, "That's the sound. Please don't switch out the drum. Please don't switch out the drum." And I was like, "All right, all right, all right. You know, let's just do it." And you know, and then and then I was like, "Okay, okay." Because I, I I didn't have I never recorded that long before, so that I was like, I guess you know, let's see what happens. We can come back down and do it again if it really sounds like garbage. But then it sort of made sense later. I mean, I wouldn't do that deliberately now. I would never play a show like that. I mean, it was it it, it was weird. It was completely wacko, but um, it yeah. didn't work out. With its brooding bass line and syncopated guitar stabs, the track Broken Language accomplishes a lot in a short amount of time, moving in unexpected directions and all the while being held together by Vokin's thoughtful and detailed drumming. That one, like the thing that I remember about that and like I still, like that one maybe more, maybe more than anything else, like I wrote <laughs> the drum part I was really happy with because um, I had a drum teacher in high school and it was all like concert snare during the, during the school year. But during the summer we would do drum set stuff. 
and he would talk about just ideas, which is sort of weird for a teacher at that time, at least in the early 90s, um, at least to me. I don't know. Maybe people do it now. But, um, you know, we would jam and he, he would play guitar or whatever. And he's like, all right, we're just going to go. And then we'd just play and you'd have to just start going. And then he would stop it sometimes and then say, like, why did you do that? And you'd have to explain yourself. And um, one of the things that he kept always repeating is like, if like you have to play a fill with like, there has to be a point, you know, and it's not a complicated point. It's like, Hey, we're going to this thing. This is where we are in the, in the song or whatever. He's like, if you want to go nuts the entire time, that's a whole nother deal. But if you're writing a song, like there's a point to a fill and you need to decide what that is. And like the fill right after the first verse and then the fill into that bridge, like probably the best thing I've ever played in my entire life. fill for the verse is like a prelude for the fill before it gets into the bridge and the thing that really works where it goes into the bridge is that it sort of flows into the bridge and it's sort of like the best way i've ever managed to get a fill to work in my life where it, like it transitions into the beat i play there like seamlessly so mm. It's like da 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 but I introduced that earlier, so it's already like in the listener's mind. Like, here's a thing, this is a thing that's coming, and then when it happens, it's like you get into that groovy part with the with the tom riff, and then when you get back out of it, it happens again. And that was like the drum teacher died. I was like, hey, check it out! I did the thing. Like, I always thought about that guy when I wrote it. I was like, I can't believe I fucking wrote that. Like, I, I, I was so happy with it. I don't think I've ever told anybody that before in my life. But I remember when it happened, I was like, holy shit. Like, that, that's exactly what he was talking about. But that's that, awesome. I was so happy. Like, I was so happy that that came out. Like, I don't know what made me decide to do it. Like, I have no freaking idea. But, like, I remember like, being bridge. able to go to that beat like and have that fill like come up to play that fill introduce it and then have the fill transition into that second part where it's like that's exactly what's supposed to be there that's it's awesome. a tricky little part but i like i like that part like yeah that part. yeah it worked out i think that's pot, like that's that's not maybe my favorite song, but like that's my yeah. that's far and away my favorite drum part. <laughs> I would yeah. say that was also a song that, um, you know, it was just so like uh, there was something about it that felt like we were growing from the the band that uh, made the first EP that we self released, and then the Star Time EP, and kind of becoming there was something about that song that felt special to me and felt like maybe better than the uh, kind of one of the better moments on the Star Time EP.
track Beat Beat greatly emphasizes the power of restraint. Palm-muted rhythm guitar lays upon a bed of sparse, pulse-like beats as hand claps and tambourines are added to the mix, bringing in just the right amount of subtlety to enhance the song's sonic space. So Spoon was playing the Carson Daly show. I believe it was the Carson Daly show. And their bass player, Josh, he was like stranded at an airport somewhere, not with the rest of the band. And Rick called me up, he said, would you, uh, would you come on the show and play uh, the way we get by with us? And I was like, yeah, sounds awesome. And um, I learned the song at home, came to the studio, played it with Britt, and then Josh ended up making it. That's just the lead up is to say then I went home that evening and uh, wrote that song. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I love that story. It's the best yeah. story it's been told. Love that. <laughs> yeah. So when I said I went home and wrote that song, I wrote the like melody and the chord structure and then we arranged it in the practice space. But this was the one song where I wrote the lyrics at the recording studio like you know, a day or two before I was going to cut the vocal. The handcrafts were Tom Monahan's idea. Yeah. Oh. Like, I think Tom Monahan was, was like, that's, we got to throw that in there. And it, and it was good because that, you know, the, the verse and, and everything is obviously really, like, super pared down. And, uh, yeah, he, he was the guy that decided to break the, you know, don't go in the percussion accessories box um, studio rule. <laughs> <laughs> it's so important. Derek. The tambourine at the end of that song, that was something that you either created or was that recommended to you? That was not something you were doing when we were in the rehearsal room. That that happened in the studio, right? I totally don't remember. I'm pretty sure. I'm pretty sure that was something you guys cooked up, you and Tom, or maybe you, Tom and Brian, in the studio. And and that's what I mean, like, you know, my memory was that, like, when we were going into the studio, or when we were in the studio, the idea of, like, maybe Tom saying, like, so, is anything else going on this song? And I just remember feeling, like, ashamed after a while, after, like, the first time, I'd be like, no, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny, because, because it, like, does speak to our... It's just where we were in our process, but it also saved the record. You know, it's like to think of where we were, you know, I mean, maybe I'm going to just 
to Tom's credit, he probably wasn't even looking for an answer. He probably trusted right. the song just enough like to just city. say that, like, are you hearing anything else? And because we were so early in the process, we were just like, um, no, <laughs> how about a hand clap? You know, it's, it preserves the record. It preserves the songs. And it's it, totally to think of these songs as having been like severely overdubbed or, or even just by like one or two additional things that would have, it would have been too much. The Phil Spector inspired Run Day Run with its catchy melody and tango rhythms is a track in which Julian Tepper truly shines through his intuition as a bass player, as well as the space and freedom that comes with playing in a three-piece, Tepper adds memorable lines that complement and strengthen the song's musical backing. You know, so many of the first songs for me trying to figure out how to play the bass. This would be an example of an early song where I felt comfortable enough to say, all right, I'm going <laughs> to think about this instrument and see what hits me. And um, yeah, that's what I remember from that time. I remember that was a song that was born out of like, you know, us trying to write this record in four months and we had been doing it for a couple of weeks every day. And I remember that song like being born out of a, what felt to me like a pretty arduous, uninspired day of playing music. And then that, <laughs> that the verse part came out, the sort of that descending part. And then uh, I want to say I wrote, I went home and wrote the, the chorus and the bridge the next day but you know it's funny like when i say i went home and wrote the chorus and the bridge like the thing with our band that felt like a rule of thumb was that it was like it had to work between all three of us it wasn't like uh okay here's how it goes and then everyone plays their parts it, it was really important to us that it cooked so you know it was like it's like the fact that i went home and wrote something and, came back and, and it and it worked was like a fucking miracle. It felt like, like, holy shit, we lucked, we lucked out. Oh my God. Like, can that happen yeah. again? How do we make that happen again? How do I, you know? No, it, it almost explains it. And this is somewhere between joking and somewhere beyond that. But it's like, you see why people start solo careers because you bring in an idea and then we really would just like take the song apart. And it's a lot to, it's a lot to do that with something you've been, not that you were precious about it. It doesn't even mean that you have to be precious. It's just like this. You wrote something, you, it hits you, and then you bring it in, and then you have to sort of watch it get knocked around a lot. And then it comes back around, hopefully. It's a, it's a tricky process. You know, 
I've written a kid's record and it, I mean, why wouldn't it be this way with a kid's record? But when, when we recorded it, it was like put down the guitar to a click track and then we put down a, a program drum and then the bass, you know, a lot of bands, even with the best players, you write the song in the studio and then you learn how to play it afterwards. And I don't yeah. even think that would have really occurred to us to do that kind of stuff. I think at that point when something did work, it was like, thank fucking God. along Derek's Friday feels around um, broken language Phil the run day run thing I was I was proud of myself I knew I was pulling from this grab bag but it wasn't that self-conscious but it was exciting to grab this phrase run day run from the I guess Ronette song or Sherelle song some Phil Spector group and grab that phrase that was exciting that was exciting to kind of recontextualize the do run run thing uh uh, again, but it was like, I'm making it sound so much more thought out than it was. But it was cool to like, you know, be in this indie rock band playing a minor key song and say something that sounded like, uh, you know, this Phil Spector produced song that I really liked and, and kind of marry those two and be like, oh, wow. Once again demonstrating the band's gift for subtlety, the song Do What You Should features a wonderfully simple yet clever guitar line and tasteful minimalist drumming, but the track's true high point is the addition of backing vocals during its chorus, which adds a new layer to the band's sound and also highlights Max Tepper's solid vocal performance. idea and that that again too like when he had me do that i was like whoa you know it was like he showed me uh like saturn had rings around it or something like that <laughs> I was like holy crap that was like the runs uh i remember where it was like we needed we needed one more song and we wrote that song and uh i, I want to say we wrote it in an afternoon and I remember all of us being like, yeah, like, you know, like our voices would go up 
when we would like, yeah, it's cool. It had this sort of collage thing. We weren't, I don't think we were sure of the full song, but we liked the part. And at that yeah. point, that was what we had to go on. You know? Yeah. <laughs> We're like, these parts individually we like. Derek's drum part is yeah. cr- crazy minimal, is what I, I remember. I remember, like, I think deliberately I was like, I'm playing a lot of shit on this record. Maybe I should <laughs> try one where I don't, like, really play any of that. I do think there's something to this song where there's, like, kind of like rebellion and the in the minimalism i think probably we were all feeling that to some extent but this is what we're doing (laughs) it's such a great example of uh what uh i think you were just saying julian where uh yeah we had a recording date and it was like we did another song and so it was kind of working under pressure and no real time to uh make another one so that was the one that went on and it turned out to be good i have a friend who really I remember when the record came out, really, really liked the song. Uh, and uh, I think that happens when uh, things are done spontaneously with a uh, time deadline, as opposed to maybe the second record where we had a lot more time to think about things. When we were playing live, I wouldn't put a lot of um, uh, like muffle in my bass drum, because which used to drive sound guys insane but whatever um but i part of that was because oh well i just thought it sounded better but when you're playing in a live situation you could sort of get away with it and it would it would cut better and, and it just sounded better to me but you know i knew that when we were recording you can't have this big booming thing all the time It'll just destroy everything. But what's cool about that is I got to use the bass drum like I usually play it because there's nothing happening. You know, like I'm playing it like once a measure. And um, so the bass drum sounds really enormous and uh, like super hollow in a way that bass drums generally don't sound like, I don't know, in the last 40 years. So like that was fun. It was cool, like just to hear it. Um, but it was because, you know, that song could let something like that happen versus like the right hand would have sounded like a, like uh, amplified motocross or something to use a blaster. (laughs) (laughs) As we near the end of the record, we get the bluesy, garage rock-like swagger of hours from my life.
came out again very quickly and unselfconsciously, and we took it all very seriously. But in my, my memory is we we wrote it very quickly. I think just in a few minutes, and maybe we came back a second time and kind of fine-tuned it. And I remember we played it for the first time at uh, Down Hills when we got to play Down Hills on a Friday or Saturday night. And uh, don't remember what that song is about, but again, remember that uh, it, Derek and Julian, if you remember, we had that we had the more kind of like a physically tighter practice space that was like. Uh, where we wrote a lot of the songs on the Green EP. And then for the record, we moved into the one that was like longer, where we were next to Interpol. Uh, that was yeah. that we, we eventually moved into that space. And the uh, Hours from My Life song was written in, the, in that first practice space. He's talking about two shitboxes. <laughs> Okay, don't get just because he describes one next to the other. Don't get some idea that we moved into like a, a penthouse. <laughs> they were they weren't that bad. Any New York City practice space being rented, not by bands that yeah. are making thousands of dollars. I mean, even the fact that like Interpol practiced there as they were like doing really well. I wonder how much longer they stayed there for because. You just, you heard everybody. When you stopped playing, you heard the, the next band that was playing, and that unto For itself sure. was, uh... It was, it remember. was, it was charming in its ways. It was nicely located, and I don't know. We wrote all these songs there. from my life is the energetic telling lies will get you nowhere and like the right hand and broken language an earlier version of this song appeared on the band's self-titled ep that came from that that first star time ep where the songs flowed like uh butter that's been sitting outside <laughs> <laughs> it was it was really easy and very uh, spontaneous and you know, definitely yeah. kind of like, uh, I think Mark's like our early days of writing, you know, a little more garagey, a little more influenced by the, maybe the garage rock stuff that was happening in New York. Telling Lies and uh, The Right Hand, those were actually written in a practice space that Derek and I played in with Craig. And that was the first room that like, uh, that Julian entered in on. Was it in the same building on North Fourth? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was all in that same building. I think we thought that Telling Lies was just such a great, like, showpiece. Uh, and I, that song really, like, kind of ripped at the time. You know, so I think as we were looking to fill out the record, it just seemed like it made sense to me, at least. That that was my memory of it. 
I agree. It, it felt like it was people responded to it, so it was hard to not take along as we were looking for more songs and and also I don't know that personally it was like the music that I was most interested in making with you guys and I think we all kind of agreed that yeah with that yeah right yeah things became more kind of more artier in a good way post punky as we wrote on for for BP Derek I remember yeah. you always at one point if I didn't hit the a, because you and I would start that song, and sometimes I guess maybe I don't know what happened, but at one point I would just start singing the song and, and without hitting the A, and, uh, and <laughs> I just remember you saying to me like, "You're starting singing on one note, but then when you come in on the verse, you're singing on another note." So, so hit that A before, buddy. <laughs> 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 totally don't remember that. Totally believe it. Yeah, I'm such a jerk. No, no, no. It was right. It was. It was right on. You know, some of the stuff that I think from the garagey stuff, I felt like, and I guess that sort of eventually happened. Like at least in my head, and even while we were playing it, I was like, okay, we're gonna play this. You know, not that we had like. 5,000 people showing up, but you know, the dozen people that were there, they, you know, they wanted to hear this like sort of party song and that's cool. <laughs> but I, I, I sort of never really felt in my head, at least like that was our shit, you know? Um, and like, while it was, it was cool and, you know, it wasn't like I was miserable. You know, I, I don't want to, I don't want to project that. There's not anything like that happening at all either, but, um, I do feel like some of the later stuff was sort of more, more the angle, but you know, I get it. I, I guess it was sort of one of those things like, uh, you know, it was just like, like figuring it out. And it's not to say that it was that I felt like the song was like garbage. It wasn't, it was just sort of, I felt like it was almost like another band. So that makes sense. Right. You know, that makes sense. I will say that, uh, there's like, um, breakdown part there's this guitar thing i play that when i heard it recently i was like oh that's kind of jesus lizardy and i totally didn't mean to do that and you're playing on it you just made it sound so much more sophisticated with the symbol work you were doing thinking and that's in that song you know i mean you know uh not always but most of the time it's like a band is only as good as their drummer and uh you know and this was a really good example of I think, oh, okay song, really good drummer driving it, so it sounded really good. We were lucky to have you, buddy.
album's final track, Dance Steps, with its thumping bass, tight in-the-pocket groove, and cathartic chorus, is the sound of indie rockers channeling the Supremes, and nicely concludes Beat Beat Heartbeat. into our practice space to hear what we had been working on and as a way to kind of hang out with each other and get to know each other and we played him that song and he had us kind of keep that groove but then in the quote-unquote chorus he had you Derek go to the ride which I don't think initially you were doing to kind of make it feel more like a chorus we were all game you know it was like he had us really keep that steady groove and not change, except for Derek. That was kind of different where, you know, we were getting produced, essentially, which had never happened before. No one had said, why don't you do this instead of that? And I just remember, like, feeling kind of uh, neither here nor there about it, you know? It's not <laughs> like, oh, my God, that was amazing. And nor did I feel like I was kind of giving in either. Like, I guess I got to say yes to this. Like, it was more like... Okay, yeah, uh, again, like, again, I think it was like we had a record to record and thank God I had yeah. a good sense to just keep my mouth shut and say, okay, cool, let's do that. That song for sure, um, Tom, in a good way, like went to town on that. You can't really hear it if you're like listening to it on your phone, but, you know, even with like in your car or something, like he went to town on the space echo and we went like it went bonkers <laughs> and it was cool like it really makes it opens it up and it added a nice it, it was sort of one of those things that i guess i felt a little bit weird about when when we were recording it and then like that hey we're gonna you know we're gonna do this on here like we weren't done like we went to minor street and we recorded it and then tom's like okay, you know, we're going to spend a good two hours on this in Greenpoint, you know, at least like I can remember queuing up the space echo um, and just dicking around with that for a while. And that was sort of like the first time I had ever had any experience with like a space echo. I mean, I had heard them and stuff like, you know, the obvious stuff and like dub and whatnot, but I was like, that thing's fucking awesome. <laughs> like that I remember like I remember just being like that I and it's sort of one of those things it's like it was I don't know it felt like almost like having a helicopter would be awesome like even like in the old gear sense like what the hell am I going to do with this thing like you know 364 days out of the year like this is a studio piece you just you know use it but like, I got it. I, like, second straight away. Like, I, I mean, I like, like, scientists and King Tubby and all that stuff. And, I like, I, I thought I think that stuff is awesome. But until I saw somebody use it, like, the process of using it, I was like, holy shit, this thing fucking kicks ass. And, and like, mm -hmm. that's then, like, almost that entire, 
genre of music made a whole bunch more sense because I could envision like sitting down and being like, all right, let's run this through eight more times. You know, like, yeah. Having previously done the design for the band's self-titled EP, former friend of the Tiger bandmate, Craig Metzger, creates the album art. He was sort of our constant... Uh, art director. Art, art director. He really was. I, I mean, I don't know if we ever named it, so he clearly was. Um, yeah. And uh, I, I feel like you and Craig would have a conversation, Max. And Craig sort of... Uh, I don't know. He, he he definitely spoke the language because I can't remember us like being very um, involved in shaping what he was doing. He was just sort of turn up with with these with these pieces that we were we were into. Am I wrong? Does someone remember something else? I definitely remember being like, you know, at first being like cool question mark, and then uh, <laughs> and then and then and then feeling like. Okay, this is kind of growing on me, and it's it's got something very. It, it felt very unique. It kind of looked like a flag in a way, but it wasn't. It kind of looked like a woodcut in some ways, but it wasn't. And uh, I think the more that I kind of lived with it, uh, the more I was like, "Oh, this is this is cool." I, I, I came to really like it. Yeah, I I think. He sort of just said, like, I just want to have a good image for the band. This is what I think would look cool on a record cover. And there wasn't any kind of, like, trying to make a reference to something. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, a powerful image. And, it, yeah. but, and, and, yeah. that's, and that's the end of it, you know. Um, deliberately moving away from any kind of um, reference to anything the record might be about. Or, and, yeah. I thought, and I thought, it, and it just looks good. You know, I just thought it looked good. I don't know what else to say. <laughs> that was it. Derek, I like that answer. Star Time International releases Beat Beat Heartbeat on May 20th, 2003. The record will receive a positive response, creating exciting new opportunities for the band. Yeah, we got good reviews, and we got to, you know, I think because of, we were on a hip label, and, you know, we, we wrote essentially, like, our take on melodic pop songs. I think that, you know, people for a band that was essentially just starting out, I think it, I think it did really well, you know, all things considered, you know, at the time, I I think I probably wanted more a lot sooner, but Mm -hmm. I think in, in hindsight and maturity, I think like it for, again, for a band out of tons of bands, we were, we got to do a lot of stuff, including that time period where, you know, we had a label, Isaac, who was the label. He worked his ass off, and we got to do tons of great in-stores. And, you know, uh, you know, we'd see our record cover in light boxes and in record stores and stuff. And we'd go, to a, we'd go to a town, and our record would be in the store. And, you know, all the, all the things that uh, you want from a, a label in, you know, 2003. In his August 2003 Pitchfork review, writer Joe Tanjari states, Beat Beat Heartbeat is a fun, guileless debut from a band with obvious reference points that nonetheless sounds pretty distinct. Something tells me their next move will amaze us. In 2004, the band would record their second album, the excellent The People That I Meet. 
originally slated for a 2005 release, the band would part ways with Startime International and eventually self-release the record in 2007, with the track Don't You Ever garnering some much-deserved attention due to Spoon's cover version included on their much-lauded sixth album, Ga 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 Ga. Due to frustrations caused by the record's delay, as well as new priorities, Bokens would leave the band in 2004, with the Teppers continuing the natural history for a brief period of time before officially disbanding around 2005. Though their time together would be somewhat brief, the band was able with that time to produce a small yet solid body of work. And in the nearly 20 years since the release of Beat Beat Heartbeat, the members of the band remain proud of the record they were able to create. Sounds really rocking in my mind. We sound really good. And and I think the songs that we wrote for that record, as opposed to the songs that we took from the EP, really showed a lot of growth from the EP. And, uh, you know, I, I feel very proud of it personally. You know, people will often ask me, like, what, you know, oh, what do you miss about, like, being in a band? And the number one thing was the way that that record like came together, you know, working with people in that fashion and, and, and recording that process was just, was, was great. You know, it was, it was cool sitting in that, you know, relatively hollow shitty rehearsal studio um, and going through that process of writing stuff. Like, I, you know, went through, Jesus Christ, I, I want to say like $1,200 worth of drumsticks that year. Something like that. <laughs> um, <laughs> so many but it was too. cool. I, I mean, that was, it, was, it was good. It was, it was a cool process. What, what's sort of weird is as we did it, I think sort of maybe I crawled up my own ass a little bit with like maybe a lot of the things that were going on. And the fact of the matter was, is that it turned out awesome and, and it was, it was good to do and it was productive. I learned a ton um, and everybody we worked with on it was, was, was great. Definitely. I, I want to just add that we're turning to these songs. Definitely. I just felt afterwards that um, the song, the songs are just good songs. They're just like actually like sort of solidly built songs, no matter what you did with them. I, I don't know. I was surprised because I think it's, it's always been kind of hard for me to listen to this record, but, but listening to the songs, they're just not good. <laughs> I mean, that's how, that's how I felt. So it was nice to be able to return to them for sure. Thanks for listening to In Loving Recollection. A very special thanks to members of the Natural History for speaking with me about this very special record. You can stream Beat Beat Heartbeat and more from the band on the various streaming platforms. I also highly recommend you checking out Julian Tepper's most recent novel, Between the Records, which is a fictionalized account of the making of the people that I meet. And speaking of the people that I meet, 
It has also been recently reissued for the first time on vinyl, which you can purchase at rarebirdlit.com. Seek this stuff out. It'll make you a better person. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, or at inlovingrecollection.com. We'll see you next time. We'll get through this.